0: A very warm welcome to you all. It is really great to see you. Welcome to day three, the final day of ENC Sides. Also, happy Mother's Day. Let's hear it for the mothers. So, just going to say a prayer for mothers. So, if you're next to a mother, or if you're a mother, you'd like to tell someone next to you, yeah, I'm a mother, uh, just maybe place a hand on... on On their shoulder or something? I'm going to pray for them. So, so Father, we thank you. We thank you for mothers. We thank you for mothers in our community. And we thank you for the incredible way that they uh, represent and they pour out the heart of Jesus to their children and uh, and to many, Lord God. We just are so grateful. And we ask today that you would resource them from on high, that you would give them... Uh, fire to their gifts lord god that you would uh grow in them continually the love of god the power of god and that you would release all that you want to do through them in the world so we bless them lord mm. and lord for those for whom motherhood is a is a, a painful thing also we pray that you would bring comfort from on high that you would bring uh, mercy from your heart to theirs and we bless them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, it's been a real delight, uh, and amazing being here with us, hasn't it? It's been just a real joy. <laughs> and we, have been, we have been so enriched uh, by what uh, she's brought us over this weekend, and we're looking forward to what she has to say now. Just to remind you that her church, St. Gregory's, is going to be launched next Sunday. So do be really prayerful for that. This is in Newquay, and it covers the area from Padstow all the way down to St. Agnes. And uh, so she has, you've got a, a, a big area to cover. And, uh, and we're really looking forward to all that God is going to do through Anna and through St. Gregory's and her team. It's very exciting. So thank you for carving out time a week before your launch to be here with us. We so appreciate it. Um, I think at the end of this you're just you're going to have to nip off because you're going to go and do a Sunday gathering for yourself so but thank you for being with us let's hear it for Anna shall we yeah if you would be up for praying for
1: us we're actually inviting people um, we're doing a 24-7 prayer right up into the launch so if I send Joanna the link and maybe Joanna could send it out along with some <laughs> intimate photos <laughs> oh Oh, dear, that killed me. Oh, dear. Um, Just a quick one. Um, This is not plugging a book. This is plugging the book that um, Jen read yesterday. It's called Clay and Canvas. It's done by Open Doors. And it's basically like it's a bit of like a, a what they call a coffee a coffee table book it's just really beautiful there's lots of beautiful photos and it's just stories of the persecuted church i think it costs between like eight or ten pound and six pound goes towards um supporting the persecuted church so um look that one up it's a it's a beautiful book and the the stories as we heard yesterday are absolutely stunning Um, I just want to say, oh, gosh, uh, it's been so good to be with you. I feel like I've been enriched um, because God is moving in in your midst. I mean, those stories, God is here. He's here. He's in this church. And my encouragement to you is do not find yourself on cruise control in this church. Jump in the river. Jump into what God is doing because he's doing some incredible work. And... um, yeah it has been so good and so i mean i feel like i've been more enriched than anything i could have shared with you so um thank you so much for having me it's been a complete and utter joy um as i said on on friday night um st gregory's is going to be indebted to this church because i've learned so much from this community and so much that i just would you know if st gregory's is half the church this is um then i will be so incredibly thankful um so we've come this weekend, we've looked at, we looked at the book of Philippians, and we've invited God in, in carving out this space to gaze upon us. And we've explored that the one we, who looks upon us is the sacrificial servant, the one who pours himself out for us. And he invites us into the same way of living. He says, that actually, if you pour yourself out, you will truly find life. And what we've got to understand is, is the way of Jesus in the, the early church, it was a revolution amongst the empire. It was absolutely a revolution. It sparked from this ordinary group of, of kind of fishermen as it started out. It spread like wildfire against the odds. The early church spread. It's, it's one of the phenomenons that historians look back at and they marvel at. And it was because people basically were set free, they were liberated by this message. And the thing about revolutions is that um, it's not all big speeches. We think that sometimes that you know you, you look back over history and there's those big speeches, those big moments. But true revolutions happen in small actions against an oppressive order. And this morning we're going to be looking at some of these rebellious acts that we can take on as we leave this place. Um, so as I said, as we've been saying, like, revolutions are messy, they require sacrifice, they require cost. And you see that in the life of Paul, and you see that in the Philippians, that following the way of Jesus is not so easy. It, is, it requires sacrifice. And the question is, then, how do we endure that? Because that doesn't sound like an easy road. That doesn't sound like something that we can sustain over a long period of time. And the last few years have taught us that suffering is often around the corner when we don't even, when we're least expecting it. None of us saw what COVID was—that COVID was coming. None of us saw the fallout that COVID would have, and and all the different repercussions, financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, separating us from community. And health is one of those gifts that we take for granted until it's taken away. We ju- we just don't know. But I was going to say that there's, there's no guarantees in life, but Jesus actually does say there is a guarantee. He says there will be trouble. What a guarantee. But what he also says is, take heart, I've overcome the world. And Jesus knows that if you are following him, if you are truly following the way of Jesus, the same thing that happened to him is going to happen to you because no servant is greater than the master. So if you're really going to swim against the culture, and that's what Paul was asking these Philippians to do. He was saying, swim against the tide that you're facing in Philippians. He knew that they were going to encounter cost and sacrifice. And he knew that they were going to have need resilience to endure. And resilience is a buzzword at the moment in our culture. And the reason it's a buzzword is because nobody has it our culture does not produce people who are resilient. And what frustrates me is we go on about resilience and we try and put this plaster on resilience, but we don't actually look at what's causing it. We deal with the symptoms, we're not going to the causes of it. And I'm I'm not a cultural commentator in any way, shape or form, but I wanna take a stab at one of the reasons why I don't think we have a resilient culture. I think it's because our relationship with truth has been completely and utterly eroded. There is no longer any solid ground that we can put our foot on and we can stand upon with some security when the the, the poo hits the fan. Truth has become a feeling, something so fickle, and truth can be whatever we want it to be. That is just not true. True. That is absolute. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because it means that we basically then have no shared reality as community. We get to determine what truth is, and we end up deconstructing things to the point of disintegration, and there's nothing there. And there's no wonder that there's a mental health crisis. Like, it's causing damage to our young people. And we just sit there and say, well, let's put a plaster on it. Try and be more resilient. How about we actually go to the cause of the problem? It's one of the things I just encourage you to flush out of your system. If you're coming to God in prayer and saying, God, would you renew my mind? Renew your, his, ask him to renew your mind in this area because it is creeping into the church and it's not producing disciples of Jesus, I believe it's doing harm to us. And there is truth, there is truth. And his name is Jesus, it's a person. He is the son of God. That is something we can stand upon and say that is absolute truth. He did come as a human being and he did die and he did rise again and he is alive and he's coming back. That is the truth that we stand upon truth is a reality. Now, that's my rant over. get very passionate about that one. <laughs> Thank you. But this revolution, what is the revolution that Jesus is calling us to be a part of? Well, it says in Philippians 3, as we looked at yesterday, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, sharing in his suffering, being like him in death, pressing on towards the goal. The goal is Jesus. Basically, we are seeking to usher in a new kingdom where he is the king. So many people want the kingdom of God. They hear all the great things about the kingdom of God, the freedom, all of that stuff. They want the kingdom of God, but they don't want the king. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. The only way to encounter and engage with the kingdom of God. All that Paul is talking about, the freedom he has in chains, the rejoicing he has in chains, none of it comes without Jesus. And to fix your eyes on something, you have to orientate yourself around that, con- constantly looking, am I heading in the right direction? It's a daily choice. And we're going to be looking at that orientation this morning in Philippians 4. And I'm going to invite Liz to come up and read uh, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9.
2: Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have heard, or learned, or received from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Amen.
1: Okay, so we're going to be looking at, um, ooh, My, sorry, I'm a memento. Um, We're going to be looking at just some little um, practical things um, about how we can go from here, these kind of rebellious acts that we can put into practice, as, as Paul said there. What things can we actually put into practice in our daily life, which means that we can orientate ourselves on Jesus, not just in a moment where we come and carve out space, but every single day. And the first thing we hear is rejoice it's the theme of the book it's said joy or rejoicing is said 19 times in this four chapter letter how do we endure we rejoice and it's really key bit we rejoice in the lord you don't rejoice in your circumstances paul's not sitting there going i'm so happy that i'm in prison no his choice to rejoice is in the lord paul is not being heartless and pastoral uh, -pastoral to these people who are suffering by saying that he's not, ba- you know, there's nothing worse than when you, you know, you're going through something difficult and someone set, like, tries to fix the situation, or they just try and say something like, "Well, it's actually not as bad as everyone as you think it is," or, you know, "Your situation is as bad as other people is." That's what my mum used to say all the time. Does my head? in. Um, but he's basically saying, like, rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord, in all circumstances in all situations, that it is possible to rejoice in any circumstance, even in a Roman prison when you're facing death. It is possible to, possible to rejoice in the Lord. And I wonder, what are your rhythms of worship? What are your rhythms of rejoicing and thanksgiving and praising Jesus in your day and your week? What are your practices, your daily practices of rejoicing in Jesus? What um, What are the things you do, what are your habits that refresh your mind and your spirit every day in the Lord? What reminds you daily about your salvation? Do you do anything to orientate yourself on a daily basis? And one of the repeating patterns as you read the Old Testament, the theme again and again and again and again and again, is that the um, Israelites would kind of go off kilter, that they would follow Jesus and then they would go off. And the, the reason they would go off course is because they forgot what God had done for them. They stopped rejoicing, they stopped praising Him, they stopped worship. And um, not to put any pressure on the worship team, um, but actually, where your wor- the worship life, go- um, worship life of a church goes, that's where your, like, the church goes. And actually, it isn't the pressure on the worship team; it's the pressure on every single one of us every day to turn up every single Sunday and say we are going to give our all to Jesus. Worship is like the rudder of our lives; it's going to keep us on track. What are your rhythms of rejoicing? And then Paul goes from this rejoicing thing to suddenly it feels like he's he's changing tact um, by saying, "Let your gentleness be evident, or the Lord is near." Like it feels a little bit of an odd shift to go from rejoicing to suddenly gentleness, um, Pete James, who some of you know will know, uh, and I did this podcast series and we would just go and interview people on different subjects, and one of the subjects was um, on gentleness, and it was it 's not a uh, a theme that I was particularly excited about. It's never been something that people say I exhibit that much. Um, and but we went to uh, went to speak to someone called Jane Williams, who's this wonderful theologian who exudes gentleness. And she said this phrase, and as soon as she like right out the, the the gate, it was amazing. It was like gentleness is a kind of strength that comes from the knowledge that you are held by Christ, that you don't need any other validation. It comes out of a deep rootedness in Jesus and how much he loves you. Gentleness is a kind of strength that comes from the knowledge that you are held by Christ and don't need any other validation. It comes from that deep rootedness in Jesus and how much he loves you. Rejoicing in the Lord is basically coming back and saying again and again, day after day, I'm held by you, Jesus. I don't need validation from anything else. I rejoice in you. I rejoice in my salvation. I rejoice in that you love me. That is the anchor for my soul. It's beautiful, isn't it? A strength that comes from the knowledge that you are held. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let that quiet strength be displayed for all to see. Rejoice in the Lord. Be strong because you're held by him. The nearness of God enables faith, hope, and rejoicing in the midst of any and all circumstances. We heard it in those three women in that prison yesterday, didn't we? Their gentleness, their quiet strength was evident to all. There's something stunning about the people of God when they go through difficult circumstances. I never forget, actually, when I was at ENC, a friend of mine passed away. Um, he was uh, an amazing man. He was a, he was a young man uh, with a wife and young kids, uh, incredibly prophetic. When I got baptized, he, was, he came up. He was the first person to call leadership out of me. And I remember talking to him actually a few months before he passed away. And uh, he said, for the first time, I, I don't know what God is calling me on to. He'd just moved back to Cheltenham. He's like, I don't know what God is calling me on to. Anyway, a few months later, um, sadly, he passed away from a brain hemorrhage. And on the day of his funeral, his wife stood up, and she was crying, but she was radiant. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, And I've seen, actually, I've seen, um, you know when you see the radiance of Christ just shining out of somebody's eyes? I've seen it in a few people this weekend where you see, like, God's hand is upon you. And she got up at his funeral, and it was like this light was beaming out of her. And she talked about the agony that she had been in in the last few weeks, but she talked at basically how Jesus had basically sat by her side at her bed. And she said this phrase which I'll never forget. She's like, I was honored to be his wife, but he was never my reason for living. Jesus is. It was this amazing moment of this, this quiet strength in horrific circumstances. And she was able to say that the Lord is near. It was extraordinary. Our circumstances don't validate our value. Jesus' love for us does. We don't draw strength from the good times. We draw strength from his presence with us. So rejoice. Habitually, daily rejoice. And then he goes on. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Karl Bar, um, a theologian, said, To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I love that. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. This is a rebellious act of revolutionary material. It's an act of rebellion to pray each and every day because it basically says, I am not God, but he is. To say every single day, he is the God and creator of all things. And I come to say, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine, on earth as it is in heaven. To seek his will in prayer and then to offer ourselves to be used by him to let go of the notion that we are the center of the story, but actually to say you are the center of a story and I orientate my life around you. However, there's a problem in this verse. And some of you might have been feeling it when you hear that phrase, do not be anxious. Because when someone says to you, don't worry, sometimes it has the complete and utter opposite effect. There's a phrase that does bug me sometimes. You know when you um, go into a room maybe this is just me and it reveals more about me but when you go into a room in a church event and uh and the person who's organizing it like is completely and this is not you joanna i'm not describing you right now um is completely and utterly disorganized and you can just feel the chaos in the room and they come up to you with this kind of like this vacant smile And they say, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And basically what happens is my worry goes from 3 to a 10. Because I'm now thinking, you're not just incompetent, you're delusional. (laughs) Uh, It says more about me. (laughs) But the thing is, that phrase, actually, for some people, do not be anxious, feels pretty cruel. Because actually, you might be suffering from extreme anxiety. And someone telling you, do not be anxious, is probably the worst thing that they can say to you. And anxiety is a very real issue. It's, um, the the commentators will say we've got an epidemic of um, anxiety. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I'm I'm creeping into a few things, cultural commentator, and now I'm going to a psychologist. Um, So I don't want to be clumsy about this area because um, I'm not a specialist, but I do want to try and help clarify what Paul is actually saying here. I want to, to help us understand what the difference is between that actually this is something that is incredibly helpful for those people who are struggling with anxiety. Um, and it'd just be helpful for us to know what we understand anxiety as and what Paul is understanding anxiety as. So um, just to help us on that journey, uh, there are basically two types of anxiety. There is everyday anxiety. And that's actually good for us. It's it's an anxiety every human being experiences. It's kind of helpful for us to experience that anxiety because it makes makes us make good choices. Like, oh, I feel a little bit nervous about all these cars rushing in. Maybe I should just not step onto the road. That's like that sort of like, you're just gonna make a good choice because you feel a little bit anxious. However, there is also a thing called problematic anxiety where everyday anxiety becomes a habitual pattern and it actually becomes debilitating for you and those around you. And within problematic anxiety, there is also a scale. Um, And it might be that actually you sit on the the really extreme scale where you're experiencing chronic anxiety. And actually, it is helpful to take medication, helpful to go and see a doctor and get some diagnosis and help with that. And there's a lot of people um, experience kind of a low-grade anxiety, this hum of anxiety that is with them on the on a regular basis. And um, some of you might recognise that, you know, um, basically it's apprehension, and, and we all will know apprehension. If you've watched anything vaguely scary on a, a movie, and you have see that kind of. I'm going to say it is usually a woman walking into a a house on a dark night and then the the music starts like the doom, doom, and you're like, oh, I can feel the anxiety rising of like the apprehension of what the heck is going to happen next. And people are walking around with that feeling, that low-grade feeling all the time of apprehension. And it is absolutely exhausting. But I wanna say that actually this this passion passion speaks to both of those things, the everyday anxiety that we feel, but also um, it speaks into the problematic anxiety that people are feeling. And I wanna say to you that there is great, if you are experiencing, if you're here today and you're experiencing problematic anxiety and you've maybe got a diagnosis or, or even waiting to go and see a doctor or you think you need to go and see a doctor, I just wanna say like, well done for being here. Because that would have taken a huge step of courage to step into a room like this. And that is actually like a massive deal. And I'd say there's grace on the journey for you there of just taking small steps. So if you came here this weekend, well done. Like that is a huge thing. It may feel like a small step to other people. But actually, I just want to acknowledge and recognize that you have been incredibly courageous in coming this weekend. And I hope that some of what I share this morning actually is a comfort to you as opposed to something that increases the anxiety. So let's go for it. Uh, Let's look at what Paul is saying. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, the first thing to say is what Paul is not talking about is a medical diagnosis of anxiety. That just would not have been in his framework of understanding. It just wasn't even, like, it, it, just, it just wasn't there. It wouldn't have even been something he would think about. Apparently, it's only been, like, talked about in the last 150 years, which says something about our culture. Um, but so it would just wouldn't have been in his framework <laughs> at all. And yet, I do think, even though this book was written 2,000 years ago, I do think what he said then can speak to us now. What he's not saying is just stop being anxious. He is not saying just stop that physical reaction that you feel. But what he is doing is he's speaking into a culture that is deeply anxious. The Philippians would have been an incredibly anxious culture. If you think about what we've learned about them over this time, they're basically um, obsessed with honor that their whole lives are orientated to getting this thing which actually feels incredibly fickle. They would also have been worshipping so many different gods. And basically, these these gods were incredibly fickle. You had to keep them happy. You had to do things in order for them to be pleased with you. You had to appease them again and again. It was like being on a constant spinning wheel of, of, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Have I got enough honor? Have I done enough for the gods? It would have felt incredibly anxious. And anxiety, it spreads, doesn't it? So even though these, Philippian, these these Christians in Philippi, they wouldn't have been worshipping those gods. They would have been surrounded by anxiety. And we need to be careful when, um, like we need to be observant, I suppose, about what of the culture comes into the church. Because um, I, I went to um, Jerusalem a few years ago and I knew when I was going to Jerusalem that like, it was going to be, tricky. I knew that there were going to be walls. I knew there were going to be guns. I knew there were going to be divisions. I knew there were going to be barriers. I knew there was going to be hostility in the the city. What I didn't expect was to see it in the church. There's the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which basically where they believe Jesus was, um, was killed and where his tomb was. And basically this church is divided up where the Christians have fought over this space. And so much so that the the Catholics, the the Anglicans, the Orthodox, they fight over that space so much so that then none of them are trusted to look after the keys of that church. They have to give them to the local imam. It's basically like what is going on in the city, the division that is going on in the city has come into the church. And we can look at that and say, oh gosh, that's terrible. What of the culture has come into the church? And what Paul is saying is like there is, you're swimming in a culture of anxiety. You're swimming in a culture where there's this obsession with honor and you've got to be careful that it's not coming into the church. Don't be anxious. Don't let their ways come into the church. Don't drink of the same water that they are drinking from. Don't drink from the water of anxiety that they are drinking from. And the Greek word that um, Paul used is, um, I can never say it, marinae. I'm going to say that, marinate, there we go, marinate, that's how you say it, marinate. And he uses um, this, the same word for anxiety that that Jesus used when he says, do not worry about what you will eat and drink in Matthew 6. And this is important because worry is actually a cognitive phenomenon. Worry is an action that we do with our minds. And worry is linked to anxiety, as we would understand it, um, because when we, when we worry a lot, our bodies can go into that kind of anxious state, uh, that physical state of anxiety. But what Paul isn't saying is don't go into that physical state of anxiety. What Paul is saying, watch, watch what is going on in your mind. What he's talking about is the stewing like the, the, the constant thinking about the same thing over and over again. The repetitive worry about the unknown. Because that's what the Philippians, were, the, the, the Philippi, the, the city in Philippi was worried about. They were worried about the unknown. They were on this treadmill of anxiety. And Paul is saying, like, be careful that you don't go into that same mode of, of worrying and stewing over what the unknown is. And our whole culture is also filled with worry. It's just a different type of worry, isn't it? It's like, am I enough? Am I earning enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I funny enough? Am I connected to the right people? Are my kids going to be okay? Am I successful enough? Am I safe? Am I approved of? Is my future secure? On and on and on. There are so many things that we worry about. But the root is the same. The root is absolutely the same. It's all dependent upon human actions. When we make ourselves the center of the story, we make ourselves uh, the saviors. We're the one who have to save the situation. We're the one who have to do everything. And we get crushed by the worry. It drives us down because life ends up depending on us. And the message version says it like this. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries in prayer, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness. Everything coming together for good will come and settle down on you. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaced the worry at the center of your life. Prayer is like the offloading of worry. Prayer is like Paul is not saying just stop doing it. He's basically saying all those negative thoughts, all those negative feelings, all that fear of the unknown, take it somewhere take it somewhere, express it, but express it to me." And we heard Rebecca doing that in the prison. Her first reaction was to go to God in prayer, to go to God in prayer. And sometimes prayer is actually about contending with God. I don't actually see that many pretty pleasant and well-crafted theological prayers in the Bible. Like, I see raw and honest prayer where people are wrestling with God. They're saying, Hey, you promised that you would be that God. Will you come and do it? Have you forgotten us, God? Where are you, God? Like, our prayers can be quite actually ballsy. You can actually be like, God, I'm going to contend with you in prayer. I'm going to bring my worry. I'm going to bring my petitions. It's not about these kind of like nice little frilly prayers. It's actually like, I'm going to bring you the raw, honest stuff of my worries, my fears, my concerns about all these different things in my life. I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to choose not to stew on this and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to take this on myself. I'm going to fix the problem. I choose to bring all my worries into the center of the presence of God. And I say, come and do what you want to do. I submit them to your will. I say, if, this is, if you want to do something in my life, then God, come and do it. Be that sort of bold person says, God, you've called me here, then come and do it. God, you've, you've sent me, well, then like, equip me. God, you've called me to do something. Well, then send me the right people, whatever it might be. Like, God, would you come? Like, it's an amazing thing that happens when it basically then stops being on us. It's actually putting it back on him and saying, come and do what you promised. Come and be who you said you would be. If you're my father, come and be my father. If you're my savior, come and be my savior. If you're my friend, come and be my friend. That's what you need to get out to God. God. That's what Paul is talking about. He said, take all of that worry. Like, of course he would have felt stuff in prison. He was not numb, an emotionally numb man. He would have felt a lot in prison. But he took his petitions. He took his cares to God. Do not fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries in prayer. Letting God know your concerns before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness. Everything coming together for good will come and settle down on you. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displays worry at the center of your life. We're not passive in this. So rejoice and pray. But then also he he finishes up, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So he's basically saying, like, it's not just about taking the negative stuff. It's then feed yourself with the positive. Chew on encouragement. Because worry worry is basically fed on lies. So what you need to do is fill yourself with truth. You need to fill yourself with the scriptures. You need to fill yourself with encouragement. You need to honor and celebrate the Timothys and the is around you. Tell the stories of God. And like you could feel it this morning, like... I mean, it felt, when I was listening to those stories, faith was rising in the room as we chew on the encouragement of what God is doing. It's like, oh yes, he's good. I remember he does actually move in people's lives. It gives me faith for my friends. It gives me faith for my family members. Feed on truth, ruminate on encouragement. Think about the Timothys and the Epaphrodituses in your life. Think about the Liz Camps. Think about the Nathans. Think about the McClunes. Think about the Ian and Jackie Barrams. What is noble? What is right? What is pure? What is lovely? Admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And honor it. Honor them. Remember, Paul was not binning honor. He was saying, just honor the right things. Call out the good in others. Celebrate and learn from the goodness that you see around it and put it into practice. Look to those who are choosing the descending life. And rather than multiply the worries, multiply the encouragements. Say that the good that you see in people. So rejoice. Contend in prayer. Feed on encouragement. And none of this stuff, all these things are incredibly practical, but they're they're just going to remain words this morning unless you make a plan to actually go and do it. Unless you choose to make a plan of actually how you're going to orientate your day. And yesterday when we were in the the seminar of how to to hear from God better, we basically talked about learning from from church history. For 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to follow Jesus. And um, they've learned some pretty good stuff along the way. And the early church, basically, they would, they would orientate their day not around time, not around food, but they would orientate their day around prayer. There were basically rhythms and pillars into their day, which marked out, was, which was kind of like the stakes in the ground and everything else worked around that. Like, what happens if we were that sort of people? Like, our days were orientated around prayer, not our stomachs not achieving something, not waking up in the morning, quickly checking our emails because we actually just need to go and do something. No, 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 I couldn't possibly pray because actually this really depends on me and I actually must go and check my Instagram or whatever it might be to center and orientate our day, our time around Jesus. And the Celtic communities, they did that too. They would have all these these communities of prayer and worship, and they would order their days, they would order their weeks around um, discipleship, they would order their months, they would order their calendar year around having a healthy diet of being with Jesus. And there's this um, great story about um, this theologian called Bonhoeffer, and, and Bonhoeffer was um, a theologian in Germany um, ar- around in the time of, of World War II. And just before, before kind of the war kicked off, um, he had a community of, of men where he was taking discipleship really seriously. And he was practicing some of this stuff about like daily disciplines. He was being absolutely rigorous about it, about reading, ta- reading the Bible, about confession, Um, about taking communion and he was getting really intense about it and his friend was like mate like what's going on like why are you being so intense about this like this is this seems a little bit too extreme that you're you're being so ordered around that so Bonhoeffer took him to the top of a hill and on one side, you could look down, you could see the house that he had built this community. And on the other side, you could see an SS camp where they were training people to be um, brutal killers. And he basically looked at them both and he said to his friend, he said, this, this community needs to be stronger than that. What goes on here, discipleship needs to be stronger than that. And I want to say to you guys, what goes on here in this community What you do in your life of prayer, the way you order your life around Jesus, that needs to be stronger than that. Because if you don't plan for it, if you don't make space for it, if you don't have intention about it, then you will be swept along. You'll find yourself in 10 years time on cruise control, maybe going to church, but your life won't be on fire for Jesus. You won't be all in for him you would have orientated yourself around different goals. You would have orientated yourself around different idols. If you actually looked at your life, you would saying, actually, if I, I look about how I spend my time, what am I prioritizing? It probably won't be Jesus. Because unless we are intentional about it, the, the culture is incredibly strong. There's lots of good things. I'm not all negative about culture. There's lots of good things to celebrate. But unless we are awake and alert, we will be swept off in the direction of travel, which is not leading us towards Jesus. There's nothing in our culture that is trying to intentionally lead us towards Jesus. There's distraction. There's different idols. There's different things being celebrated. And that's what Paul is saying to these guys in Philippi. Saying, like, there is so much that is going to pull you away from Jesus. Be really intentional about practicing some of the things that are actually just going to be really good for you that are going to mean that you endure over time, which means that you are going to do these, choose these rebellious acts to live in a way which actually pushes against the tide. And when persecution comes and when it gets really tough and suffering comes, you'll be able to stand because you've built a solid foundation, because your life will be centered on me, not just a willful, nice kind of in the moment, oh, I sing a song and it feels lovely. No, actually your life will actually be orientated around Jesus, where he is the center of things. And choosing the descending life, it's hard, it's costly, it's sacrificial. But e c God has called you to preach good news. He's called you to set the captives free. He's called you to drive back darkness. He's, he's called you to extend the revolution of his kingdom in Exeter and beyond. And it will be worth it. I promise you, it will be worth it. There is nothing like seeing Jesus set people free. We heard it this morning. There's nothing like it when you see Jesus transform a life. There's nothing like his presence. That that my friend, when she was standing on that stage at her husband's funeral, there's nothing like his presence. Nothing compares to it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author, the perfecter of your faith, your joy and your salvation your savior, your best friend, the truth, the life. He is pure freedom and he deserves all glory and honor. All glory and honor belong to Jesus. This whole world was made for him, through him, by him. And it finds its completion in him. He will be coming back one day to restore all things. And we just get the joy of basically bringing some of that restoration now. We get the joy of seeing some of that resurrection life flow through us. Live in us and flow through us. What a joy. But the only route is the descending life. The only route is the descending life. There is no other way. And you're never going to be able to endure the descending life unless you plan for it, unless you open yourself up to it.